Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. Hello, everyone. Welcome to August. I am Lee Pfeffer, your host of History is Gay, and we are back in your feeds for the second part of an episode that we brought you last time. I am joined again by guest host Tyler Albertario, who was with me for our first discussion on the rise of the homophile movement pre-Stonewall, early gay rights organizing. And today we're going to continue that conversation where we're going to get into the meat of the 60s and a little bit into the 70s. Hi, Tyler. It's wonderful to have you back. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Heck yeah. Is there anything that you are like particularly excited to get into today that we didn't uh, get a chance to talk about last time? Well, it's just one giant ball of drama, so <laughs> I'm, ex- I'm excited for all of it. Excellent. Uh, yeah, so this is part two of a two-part episode, so if you have not listened to our previous episode, episode 42, I highly suggest you go and listen to that, because uh, not a lot of this episode will make a huge amount of sense if you don't have some of that context. And also you get to, you know, listen to me and Tyler talk about things like Confirmed Bachelor and the pre-drama to the drama that we'll be covering. Uh, in terms of content warnings for this episode, it's going to be similar to our part one discussion of era typical homophobia and discrimination. We're going to be talking about some Nazis. We're going to be continuing a little bit of the conversation on queer people and the homomedicalist narrative. We'll, as usual, put the time codes in our show notes so you can determine where you'd like to opt in or opt out. So last time we went into kind of the origins and all of the main players and gave you this introduction to these early gay rights organizations. And uh, and and where where exactly did we leave the story last time and where are we picking up from? So we left off sort of in the early 60s with Frank Hamney and Barbara Giddings sort of finding their footing in the early homophile movement and the emergence of an understanding that there needed to be some form of broader organizing structure going on within the homophile movement. And in this episode, we're going to be covering efforts to do that in the form of the East Coast homophile movement. Uh, organizations from 1963 to 65, and then later, as a national effort, the North American Conference of Homophile Organizations, which lasted from 1966 to 1970, Mm -hmm. and finally being supplanted by the way more radical gay liberation movement following the Stonewall Rebellion. Yes. Let's get into it. 
Just a really quick follow-up or clarification from last episode. We had a listener, Peter Feckety, write in just with a little clarifying note about Barbara Giddings. We mentioned in the episode that Barbara Giddings was a librarian. She was not officially a librarian. Um, she didn't have, you know, a master's degree or worked in a library, but she was really heavily connected and involved in libraries. She was really uh, involved with the American Library Association and was a founding member in court coordinator of their gay and lesbian caucus founded in 1971. And that was like the first type of uh, professional association like that in America. She was a strong advocate for the presence of LGBTQ materials in libraries. And the ALA even ended up awarding her like a lifetime membership and named an annual award for like best queer novel, the Barbara Giddings Award. So, you know, we'll call her an honorary librarian. It's not to diminish anything that she did. Just a clarifying point. She was a friend of librarians. Yes, she was a friend of libraries. Exactly. Kind of like how the the Communist Party told Harry Hay, named him a lifelong friend of the party. Right. <laughs> Barbara Giddings was not actually a librarian, but she was a lifelong friend of the librarian. Um, so we'll we'll give that to her. Um, so thank you for writing in for that that clarifying note to all the the librarians out there. We love you. <laughs> and so did Barbara. And so did Barbara. Yeah. So for our, you know, kind of historic context, um, we're mostly just going to point you to our first episode. Go back to our last episode for a lot of the details. You know, by now we know the main organizational players. We're working with Mattachine Society and its various chapters as they evolve into the space where we're in now. Daughters of Belitis, One Incorporated. And then by this point that we're kind of entering the story, others like the Janus Society in Philadelphia, the Society for Individual Rights in San Francisco, and more organizations are starting to pop up. And they were mainly focused, not exclusively, uh, but mainly in the Northeast Corridor. So Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, D.C. That's kind of where a lot of these new organizations are starting to pop up. And this is where it's decided ultimately the first effort at organizing nationally, organizing these organizations in a national context is going to be undertaken in this Northeast Corridor area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we also get another really significant court case regarding like obscenity laws uh, that pops up following up from our 1v Olsen. We, we didn't get a chance to talk about it in the last episode. Yeah, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but it's it's very important to understand in terms of the context of what's going on. It's manual enterprises versus day which the Supreme Court ruled on in 1962. They they held six to one that, very much like in the One Inc. v. Olson case in regards to written material about homosexuality, this case held that, you know, visual depictions of homosexuality, like mainly nude or partially nude pictures of male models were not automatically obscene mm -hmm. under federal law and thus could be sent legally through the Postal Service. And this opened the door to what are known as physique magazines, mm. uh, mm -hmm. which were near pornographic in nature and were justified by stating that, oh, well, you know, they're artistic in nature. They're for the appreciation of the male form and, and such. And, right. <laughs> what, um, would, what would eventually kind of evolve into like Tom of Finland. <laughs> right. And this, and this, and this would all be, um, eventually negated by the Miller case where a new standard for obscenity was set. Uh, mm. 
later in the 60s. But this shows where, you know, the movement is at. There are these advancements in terms of being able to express support for homosexuality and to be able to express homosexuality in the sense of sexuality, right. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Hmm. Starting to move. I know, right? Like, wow, you know, we're doing some, some pretty uh, sexy and sensual stuff for a group of folks who declare that they want nothing to do with the sexual part of homosexuality. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, put a pin in that. <laughs> uh, no, yes, though, put a pin in that because, you know, this whole issue with magazines will come up later. Yeah, reasons why we were like, oh, wait, we should probably put that in the intro because we right. decided we were going to talk about that last episode and didn't get to it, but it comes back. Boy, does it come back. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, like, like Tyler was mentioning, right, by 1962, 1963, we get pressure on Mattachine and Daughters of Belitis, like the hubs, mainly at this point in New York, right? Uh, and Washington. And Philadelphia. And Philadelphia um, to kind of organize everybody. And you can't organize every single organization that exists across the entire country, at least to start. Right. You know, starting northeast, east coast. And it's it's a main transportation of people can get That's to true. everywhere with, within this region. A and lot easier <laughs> than right, trying exactly. to get to, from like San Francisco to LA. Which leads us to... Yes. So, you know, we're dividing this up into kind of like three phases and then like an quote-unquote epilogue. So phase one is starting to come together, right? Regional organizing and collaboration, which starts in 1963 with the formation of ECHO. Yes, so ECHO stands for the East Coast Homophile Organizations. I did a lot of research on this a couple weeks ago at the William Way LGBT Center in Philadelphia. Heck yeah, archives! Uh, yeah, going through the Joan Fleischman papers. She was Echo's first secretary, I believe, and she kept a lot of the minutes of not only the conferences, but as well as the uh, steering committee meetings and the credentials committee meetings, and it was a very interesting visit. Basically, what you need to know about ECHO, it was formed at a meeting of the Mattachine Society of Washington, Mattachine Society of New York, Daughters of Belitis, and the Janus Society. They all met in Philadelphia on January 26, 1963, and decided to establish the East Coast Homophile Organizations, or ECHO, as it's commonly known. And from the minutes of that meeting, quote, a meeting was called to order on this date at 2.45 p.m. for the purpose of discussing closer cooperation between East Coast groups interested in the homophile movement. And they decided that they were going to hold a convention or a seminar type event in the coming months and that it would be taking place in Philadelphia because that was the most central location that everyone would be able to travel to in this region. They decided it was also, fun fact, it was going to be arranged to coincide with the American Psychological Association conference that was coming up as, you know, sort of needle in their side, mm -hmm. so to speak. And the goals were going to be, number one, quote, to promote greater unity among the East Coast homophile groups, and number two, to arrange participation in conventions of other groups allied directly or indirectly to the homophile movement. Yeah, uh, the minutes that, that you were able to take a look at were really, really cool. They're really extensive. I hope there are some, there are some resources, hopefully, online, you know, where you can see these things. Um, but if you live in the area, go check out the archive. Oh, definitely. William Way LGBT Center in Philadelphia is a really amazing institution for this type of history. Awesome. Well, going back to, you know, Barbara Giddings just for a moment, um, you kind of, you, you found through your research that she was apparently 
really skeptical of Echo when it was first proposed. Yeah, she was like really kind of ambivalent about it. She sort of wondered aloud at DOB meetings whether it was, quote, a springboard for a formal reaffiliation of those three Mattachine spawned groups, (laughs) (laughs) sort of like intimating that they're these evil hell spawns. Um, but Nothing like, good has ever come out of somebody using the word spawn. Like, right, there's, exactly. no, there's no positive association with that word. <laughs> but um, she saw it possibly as a means of taking advantage of the Daughters of Belitis for its money and its energy. But, you know, it provided this tremendous opportunity for these groups to all get together and network, and she recognized that. Mm-hmm. But this sort of goes back to what we were talking about in episode one, where, you know, the DOB was heavily skeptical of mm-hmm. Mattachine and all these other male-dominated homophile groups, and Barbara right. seems to be echoing that sentiment here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, they come together at this meeting in January and decide to establish the organization, and then we get the first conference on Labor Day weekend at the Drake Hotel in 1963. The theme was decided to be homosexuality, time for reappraisal. A nice, not at all super vague (laughs) topic. (laughs) Um, And the hotel actually tried to cancel because probably a little freaked out when they finally realized, oh, a bunch of homosexuals are going to be meeting here. (laughs) Maybe we should think about that. Um, And Frank Kameny and the other Echo leaders basically had to threaten to sue uh, being like, um, you signed a contract, and right. if you back out of this, we're coming for your ass. We've won slash uh, have gotten good results in legal battles before. Maybe rethink this. Uh, you know, this is kind of really early on. Um, at this point, only one reporter who wasn't already like in the queer community responded to the press release that they sent out and actually showed up to cover the conference. Um, and this, and this is so cute. He, he helped them fold the program. So cute. He's like, well, I guess I'm the only one here. I guess I might as well just fit in and help out. And someone from Madison, Washington said to him, now you can say you participated in a homosexual brochure folding orgy. It's the best. <laughs> God, it's, the stories that man must have told. Real quote, by the way. Yeah, that's God. Do we know who said that? I couldn't find his name, but they did quote him as later writing. And this really is a nice summation of this first conference. He wrote, Deadly respectability was the keynote. Everyone was conservatively dressed. The men mostly in Ivy League fashion, the women in dresses and suits. No bottled-in blonde men, limp wrists, or lisping here. Thank you very much. Respectability is key. I mean, that's that's really, you know, where we kind of left off in the previous episode, right? Yes. So, like, speaking of, you know, the respectability, there was a lot of resistance initially by the Echo leaders to suggest that they do any kind of direct action, you know, whether that was protesting, lobbying, picketing. Again, like we saw earlier in the in the movement, everybody really just kind of immediately shut that down. And that was the kind of that was the atmosphere of this conference. And it wasn't until a little bit later where things start to shift. This conference was, you know, kind of more more important and pivotal for what it represented, these groups gathering, as opposed to, like, what they actually did at it, which wasn't a whole lot. <laughs> right, exactly. In contrast, the second conference 
far more pivotal in that latter context yeah. in terms of what they actually did there. So moving on to that, this is the one that I don't feel has ever really gotten any sort of major attention because it sort of exists in an awkward time period and is also sort of taking place in the midst of the 1964 presidential election. So it wasn't mm. really getting a lot of attention, but the second Echo Conference took place in Washington, D.C., October 10th, 11th of 1964, the theme being homosexuality, civil liberties, and social rights. That paints such a clear picture of, like, here are our priorities going forward. Yes, exactly. And it was at this conference where they sort of decided to, you know, take the dive, so to speak, and decided to adopt a more proactive activist stance and endorse the concept of engaging in public protest, engaging mm. in lobbying, engaging in public policy advocacy. Yeah. And, and Frank Kameny was a big part of that, too. Like, we gave a little bit of context to that in the last episode and then this is where we kind of really start to see a lot of that coming in yeah one of the themes you're going to notice uh throughout this is that <laughs> frank kameny kind of his, his his influence keeps uh increasing <laughs> and he also tends to stick his foot in his mouth in a lot of ways and ruffles some feathers uh, oh yeah if you're going to be polite about it but i i thought part of the the research that you did, Tyler, you know, bringing back hundreds of wonderful pictures of, of so much of the minutes so that I could check them out. There is uh, Robert King, who was the Echo coordinator. He delivered the keynote this year. And I, I really wanted to bring in this, this quote, this excerpt from his keynote, because I just thought it was really powerful. And it really shows that shift that we're talking about, this shift in hmm. thinking. He started off talking about his own experience. You know, he said, I not only come to you as a homosexual, but I come to you as a liar and a criminal because he had to lie. He had to lie. He had to perjure himself when he was like signing up for military service because of his homosexuality. And he talks about how coming into the homophile movement, like actively shifted his relationship to that part of himself and to his status in society as a queer person. I've got these like two little excerpts. He says, am I bitter about my own experience? For a long time, for many years, I wasn't. This was life. This was inevitable. This was one of the scourges of being a homosexual. I didn't think about it. I lived with it. Then I came across the homophile movement. This is what it did for me. It made me realize that I should not have to settle for a second-class citizenship. It focused my attention on the fact that the defeatist attitude of what will be will be need not be. And then he goes on to say, civil liberties. What do those words mean to the homosexual? You read in the newspapers that other minority groups are fighting for their civil liberties. For instance, for the right to be served food in a restaurant without discrimination. Does the homosexual have anything in common with this fight? You bet your bottom dollar he does. We are grossly maligned and unjustly so. We want reasonably and sanely to confer with the powers that be to set right those wrongs. We will bend over backwards to meet them on their ground. But if we're not heard, we will fight. That's such a great summation of the sentiment going around at that time. Yeah. 
Especially also just like looking at it, it so perfectly ties back into exactly what was happening when we get the Dale Jennings trial, right? Is like th- mm. that that defeatist attitude of like, well, I was caught in an entrapment case. I guess I'm just going to plead guilty and pay my fine and hope that I can pick up my life. Which so many people did. Mm-hmm. And it was so rare to see people fight back until right. this time. Until now. Yeah. Until the, you know, this moment where we're in. So I, I just thought that was really significant to put in and i you know we talk a lot about frank kameny we talk a lot about a lot of these other big players but there's a reason why this person gave the keynote and i think that is really good and speaking of frank kameny <laughs> so um theme, you know, for, er- theme for this episode speaking right. of frank kameny and uh, you know eric stravini he has a really great biography about frank kameny called the deviants war and he talks a little bit about frank's speech during this conference <laughs> and so he he uses his speaking slot to attack daughters of Belitis for opposing these efforts to lobby public officials and file lawsuits against anti-gay laws and policies. And, you know, needless to say, Tarsabalay is furious, just absolutely steaming mad at this. They're They're helping to fund the conference. Like, (laughs) maybe you don't want to piss off the people who are giving you the money to run this. Um, But you know who's psyched about it? Barbara Barbara Giddings. Like, she she was like, oh, fuck yeah. About time. I mean, we know that, you know, know, we know that Barbara Giddings had her own issues with the really holding back attitude of Daughters of Belitis, and she also got a lot of flack for that, you know, for siding with the larger kind of homophile groups rather than solid with the lesbians um but it's just you know kind of difference of of organizing opinions that are starting to clash and you know we talked about it in episode one there was a lot of members of dob that wanted dob to just sort of be maintained as you know this sort of social club for lesbians Hmm. and there was this inherent tension with that faction and people like barbara who wanted who agreed with the new prevailing sentiment that there needed to be some form of direct action mm-hmm. going forward. Yes. So that leads us into, you know, the main impact of this conference. They made the decision to hold a series of pickets over the following year, and the most famous of which would turn out to be the annual reminder picket of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And this is probably the most well-known of all these pickets from this era. It was held from 1965 to 1969 on July 4th every year in front of Independence Hall, and will get more into detail about it later. You you found a, a really nice quote also from a civil liberties attorney who attended that second conference, kind of talking about why there was the shift to, hey, let's really do some like public-facing activism. David Carliner. He said, and this is from Servini's book as well, he said, to lay the basis for getting favorable decisions, a lot has to be done in the country to affect the climate. And he's saying that basically, you know, in order to move public opinion, they have to take a proactive role in helping to shape it. And they have to shift from kind of like individual change and creating support networks for queer people intra-community. There has to be looking at like systemic change and systemic action and like legal change. Right, Right, exactly. Yeah. 
this this conference was certainly not without some action, uh, I would say. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the big hullabaloo or what could have been even bigger hullabaloo had there not been some intervention? Yeah, so like the organizers, they caught wind right before the conference, like the day or two before, that the American Nazi Party, led by George Lincoln Rockwell, were going to attempt a disruption and or invasion of the conference hall at some point during the weekend, because Rockwell himself had just made a very public denunciation of homosexuality as, quote, the most unhealthy, most unwholesome cancer in any civilization. We shall ruthlessly suppress all forms of vice, such as homosexuality, and he lists homosexuality in a longer list of supposed vices. And so after he gave the speech, I think it was in like July, the leaders of Echo started receiving a lot of threatening phone calls and letters from, you know, Nazi party members and like someone either involved in Echo or who knew members of the Echo planning committee actually saw two Nazis in swastika armbands at a gay bar holding Echo literature, and they actually called the D.C. police about it. And the D.C. police, surprisingly, actually sent plainclothes officers to monitor the conference. And at first, it seemed nothing would happen. And so the first day went totally smoothly. On the second day, though, is when this confrontation that had been rumored and feared actually happened. And I wrote about this in a whole article that I published on Medium. Basically, what happened is that a young blonde man in full Nazi uniform. Like full SS gear. Yeah, full SS gear, full swastika armband, full you know brown shirt, walks into the conference hall carrying a box wrapped in pink with a red bow. And this is during uh, a panel of clergy members. Mm -hmm. The box is labeled Queer Convention, and he shouts out... Uh, I forget the rabbi's name, but he's a uh, Rabbi Lippman. He says he basically shouts for Rabbi Lippman. So essentially what happens is that the organizers of Echo had planned an intervention, basically. They had anticipated this all weekend and in the run-up to the conference. So they all basically got up. They closed ranks around the disruptor. Shirley Willer, the future president of the Daughters of Belitis, actually was stepped on the foot by him oh, and got into a little bit of an exchange of words with him. Right. Um, he, he was like, what, you, you try to kick me, lesbian? You're, or something? You're, you're, like, you're trying oh. to you're trying to kick me, you lesbian. You lesbian, and she's and she's like, "Sir, you're on my foot. You're you're standing on my foot. Please <laughs> get, get here, off my you foot, fucking Nazi." <laughs> so, but you know, the guy was arrested. An interesting note: the plain clothes cop who arrested this Nazi. And remember, this conference is taking place October 10th and 11th of 1964. The cop who arrests the Nazi, he's the same guy who just four days earlier. October 7th, wow. had arrested Walter Jenkins, who was a major aide to President Linda B. Johnson. Like, he was basically LBJ's right-hand guy, and they arrested him for soliciting sex in the bathroom of a Washington... YMCA and the story hadn't broken yet oh, by the time of the by the time of the Echo Conference. It doesn't so you break get both of these kind of breaking at the same time, and and nobody knows who the who the cop is. Nobody associates him with the Walter Jenkins arrest because you know the news of the Walter Jenkins arrest hasn't broken yet. It 
it breaks the following week and basically for a brief moment sends the 1964 presidential election between LBJ and Barry Goldwater into an uproar. You have major media discussing homosexuality and police entrapment and the federal government's policy towards homosexuality at the time and Jenkins himself actually threatened to commit suicide and was committed to George Washington University Hospital, like very, very sad outcome for Jenkins. Mm. But, you know, Echo and the other homophile groups, especially Frank Hamney, they loved this because it was it was massive exposure to the exact type of issues relating to the federal government and, you know, the federal mm. government's hiring and security practices regarding homosexuality that really gave them the opportunity to get a lot of media attention and exposure and was like a nice boost after this convention. And they really sort of had the wind at their back going into 1965. Mm. Well, and, you know, with that, right, that kind of brings us into 1965 being this major pivot point. You know, we've kind of established the the ground rules and what we're trying to do with organizing and getting together regionally at these annual conferences. And 65 is when we start to get echo groups like engaging with each other outside of the official conferences and starting to collaborate on demonstrations. More radical factions are starting to take control of the New York chapters of Mattachine and Daughters of Belitis, and you get the first demonstrations that we were mentioning before. So there's there's a series of pickets at the White House. There's three of them in April, May, and October of 1965. There's a picket, uh, the Civil Service Commission picket, which I actually don't know a huge amount about. Well, it was to protest the Civil Service Commission's policy of automatically considering homosexuality an unhirable quality mm. for employment in the federal government. This is what Frank Hammony had been fighting for years, you know, specifically Frank Hammony. And right. eventually the Civil Service Commission in the 70s would reverse course, but this was one of the main functions of the homophile movement and ECHO more specifically was, you know, pressuring the federal government in regards to these types of policies. But, you know, the real centerpiece of everything that ECHO was doing around this time was the annual reminder picket in Philadelphia, as we mentioned earlier. And this was held July 4th, as I mentioned earlier, every year from 1965 to 69. And this was really the event where, like, if the dress code of, you know, only suits and ties and dresses and high heels were enforced stringently elsewhere, it was... Like it, it was, ten it was times, like a Bible. It was like Bible verse. It, it was ten times as stringent, as stringently enforced here. Well, th- I mean, that's what got the most national attention. And this is actually the the picketing event that we see Ernestine Eckstein featured in in the photos from the 1966 issue of the Ladder. And that's you know what she talks about in her interview in the Ladder. And we talked a little bit about that in our civil rights episode. That's specifically the event that is being referred to here. Right. And of all the other pickets, this is probably the echo picket that has the most photographic documentation mm-hmm. because it was such a centerpiece of what echo and and later the successor organizations were doing at the time. At this point in 1965, we begin to see significant development of West Coast homophile organizations, you know, that aren't part of Echo, really starting to make themselves known and start to expand their footprint. You get 
like we mentioned, the Society for Individual Rights, founded in 1964 in San Francisco. Jose Saria was one of the founding members. We will talk about him in an episode, but he was a drag queen and the first ever openly gay person to run for public office. A lot of people know about Harvey Milk being the first person to win public office, but Jose Saria was the first to run. And their agenda specifically was focused on social activism and concrete political action, defensive individual rights. And he almost won. Yeah, Jose. Oh, yeah. Jose Saria really almost almost won. He was a really important founding member. They put together with the um, Tavern Guild in San Francisco things like the Pocket Lawyer, which was a little pamphlet mm. you could carry around with what to do if you were stopped by police. The president of SIR at the time, Bill Beardemfall, said... SIR is an organization formed from within the community for the community. SIR is dedicated to the belief in the worth of the homosexual and adheres to the principle that the individual has the right to his own sexual orientation. So again, reiterating this, like, we're moving away from homosexual is sinful and therefore we need resources or sick and we need resources to fuck. I'm glad I love being gay, you know. Also, so kinky calling it SIR. Absolutely. (laughs) Which we love. But like, also really the defining non-echo event during this time in 1965 was the Council on Religion and the Homosexual. They were holding a New Year's drag benefit January 1st, 1965, and it was raided by the San Francisco Police Department, Mm. and they decided to really raise a stink about it. So- Bear in mind, Council on Religion and Homosexual is a little different from other organizations because it does have a lot of ostensibly, quote-unquote, straight members of the clergy involved in it. So there's a lot more political heft to some of these people engaging in public advocacy for queer rights at the time, so... Basically, the next day, they call a press conference, and it becomes a major story, gets picked up by a lot of local and California-based papers, and some of the people involved in it actually get defrocked as a Mm. result of their advocacy, so. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's dangerous to be clergy and be supportive of queer people. In the 60s, yeah. I mean, not just in the 60s, like, literally, I was watching, there's a a HBO show, We're Here is the show, but it's basically, it's about drag, and it, it takes people through. It's basically like a like a reality TV series version of uh, Tu Wong Fu. Essentially, it's like let's teach this small conservative town about drag. Um, and there's literally <laughs> there's literally a, a like a priest who decides to be a part of one of these drag shows, and he he got literally this last year he got defrocked because of his participation in this program. Oh um, wow, it's really fucked up. Anyway, that's an aside. Yeah, so we we mentioned the Janus Society popping up and being really important to these first few conferences. And then here comes the drama llama. (laughs) They are officially expelled from Echo. They are kicked out of the coalition, if you will, uh, in February 1965 because of (laughs) our our old friend Manual Enterprises V-Day. Right, so... Another great book, Mark Stein's City of Sisterly and Brotherly Loves, which covers a lot of Philadelphia-based activism from around this time, including the likes of the Janus Society and 
Barbara Giddings. But basically what happened is that the Janus Society, led by Clark Pollock, began producing this magazine called Drum, beginning in 1964. And it was actually included in the... Well, an ad for it was included in the 1964 program for the Echo Conference. And that's when a lot of Echo members first noticed that it was a lot more explicit than other stuff that they were used to seeing. And Pollock was quoted elsewhere as saying he wanted Drum to be, quote-unquote, the gay playboy, (laughs) which... Uh, has a lot of other connotations that we're not even going to begin to unpack. Isn't the gay playboy just play girl? Right. (laughs) I don't think it existed. (laughs) Like, let's let's be real. A lot of women are probably aren't looking at playgirl. It's (laughs) the gay playboy is playgirl. Anyway. Right, but but you know. Even given the Supreme Court's decision in, you know, Manual Enterprises versus Day, Drum was a lot more explicit than the specific contexts that, that were described in that case. And under some interpretations of, you know, state and federal laws, it could still be considered obscene and, you know, non-mailable via the Postal Service. So what happened was that, as like, FBI was on to this immediately. So uh, even before the 1964 Echo Conference, where he placed an ad in the program, a month before they had started investigating Pollock and Drum, and within a couple months, they were under federal, state, and- local police investigation and surveillance and the post office was investigating them too so not only the fbi not only the you know philadelphia da office philadelphia police department state attorney general i mean i'm sure that like the post office was probably just chomping at the bit to be able to like raid another office of queer publications and be like all right what could we find to confiscate they're probably just chomping at the bit after they got so their asses so thoroughly handed to them in one v olsen this, right, was, this but, must have been like a gold mine. Right, right. But like to give you a sense of the scale of like how much surveillance they were under, the Philadelphia district attorney was actually getting each copy of Drum, reviewing it, and then making copies and forwarding <laughs> it to the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. God, that just, so. that just like reminds me of like when conservatives are like, this book is absurd and terrible. And then they just like make it go on the bestsellers list because they're buying copies to literally burn. <laughs> like right. good job yes give that author more money sure um <laughs> like that's self-defeating but okay right so you know basically it becomes very visible that drum and janice are attracting a lot of very unwanted law enforcement attention and the scheming sort of begins within echo to push pollock and the janice society out as official members and dick leitch has this very witty quote If we had a dime for every time a high-ranking police official in New York has tried to tar and feather the Mattachine Society of New York with drum, we'd be wealthy. (laughs) So, um, but you know, after a lot of pushback from within Echo, Pollock and the Janus Society were officially expelled, and Pollock did eventually sort of yield to movement and law enforcement pressure and stopped publishing Drum Mm -hmm. in 1966, the following year. So, but with Janus Society sort of out of echo as 
one of its founding members and like you know the conduit by which a lot of philadelphia figures were engaging with echo that there was sort of the shell mattachine philadelphia organization that was set up to, time to find a loophole right time to find a loophole uh <laughs> that sort of allowed people in philadelphia to inherit janice's seat on mm. echo so to speak and allow them to continue operating under the umbrella of echo um so it's but- so it's like basically the like the child walking into a movie theater and being like one please and then be like sorry we don't serve children here um and then going back and then coming back as three children stacked in a trench coat, <laughs> a trench coat. wearing a fake mustache be like hi Absolutely. one ticket please that's basically Abs- what that is is they put yes. up they put a mustache on and walked back in yep <laughs> yep fantastic oh i love that i love that image that's the Um, first thing that came to my mind i'm like so we're exactly the same but we have a mustache now and so we're totally different (laughs) what is your account number (laughs) um but just because the janus society was out of echo it didn't mean it was totally disbanded Uh, you know in fact pollock and the janus society sort of organized one of the most important actions during this point after their expulsion so that April and May of 1965, there was this restaurant called Dewey's in Philadelphia that had long been a hangout for, you know, queer and gender nonconforming youth, specifically youth of color. And Pollock had sort of engaged with these youth and had, you know, sort of become no- a known quantity amongst them. And so one day, suddenly in April of 1965, the owner of Dewey's decides that New policy, we're not going to serve the queers anymore. And so what Pollock does with these youth is organizes a sitting campaign where a lot of people get arrested, organizes a leaflet campaign, and for weeks they sort of stake out outside Dewey's and are leafleting to passersby about how Dewey's discriminates against homosexuals and how it isn't fair and how they're organizing a boycott. Uh, eventually the owner of Dewey's does give in. And it is considered widely the first organized civil disobedience protest in LGBTQ history in the United States. And they did it outside sort of the purview of Echo. Right. Hey, y'all, I'm excited to announce that this episode is sponsored by Surfshark VPN. We're so grateful to be able to partner with sponsors like these guys who help us keep the show going and enable us to bring you even better content, pay guests, and even more. Surfshark VPN, which stands for Virtual Private Network, if you're an internet old like me, is an awesome app and browser extension that not only protects your privacy online, but changes your virtual location on your phone or computer to anywhere in the world, allowing you to access the internet as if you were actually in a different country. This, of course, allows you to bypass certain geo-restrictions and access websites and content that you might not usually be able to see. For example, let's say you just got done listening to our episode on bisexual Mexican artist, communist, and rumored lover of Josephine Baker, Frida Kahlo. And now, understandably, you'd like to stare at the beauty that is Selma Hayek for two hours, while she and Alfred Molina portray Kahlo and her husband Diego Rivera in the masterpiece that is Julie Taymor's 2002 biopic, Frida. But it isn't available over here on Netflix in the US. However, if you go over to Surfshark and switch your virtual location to Germany, voila! 
all the Salma Hayek kissing ladies you could want. Plus, Surfshark will make your everyday internet surfing way more secure by masking your IP address, keeping you safer from hackers, and will also encrypt your online data as an added layer of security to keep all your passwords, personal information, and historical not-safe-for-work images you saved to your computer for completely educational purposes nice and safe. Surfshark is offering an insanely good deal for History is Gay listeners. You can use our special promo code, History is Gay, all one word, to get 83% off and three extra months for free. Plus, Surfshark also offers a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can try it out completely risk-free. Head on over to surfshark.deals slash history is gay, or you can simply click on that link down in the show notes below for this episode. Check them out, support us, and get back to all the queer internet shenanigans of your dreams safely from anywhere. Daughters of Belitis was also kind of encountering issues regarding obscenity to a, to a much lesser extent than Janice. Barbara Giddings was really trying to, you know, by this point she was, by this point she was the editor of the latter. And so by this point she's, you know, trying to get the latter to stop carrying the tagline for adults only because that just really kind of puts a target on their back as potentially obscene publication. She was also an advocate for having the latter be a conduit for like lesbian letter writing campaigns, which a lot of veterans of the organizations were concerned would attract the same kind of law enforcement attention. Basically being like, ah, you're soliciting. You know, right. she she's the one who basically ushers in this new era of the latter using the a lesbian review subtitle that we talked about in the last episode. And then we get the third annual Echo Conference held again in September, uh, September 25th to 26th, this time in New York City. And the theme, the homosexual citizen in the great society. Uh, the conference also happened at the same time as like a news writer's strike, but, you know, the press conference prior to the first day was, you know, really well attended. So there wasn't like, there, there didn't end up being like, like a huge um, cut in the amount of people that were <laughs> going to be there. It still attracted a whole bunch of attention. And press attention. Yeah, press attention specifically is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Tangents Magazine said CBS filmed one of the lectures for a documentary that they were planning to air, which, and it just, it just paints a really nice kind of bookend of like 1963. We couldn't get anybody to come and cover this, uh, unless you were already, you know, a homo. Um, it's like right. we have one non-queer reporter and suddenly now it's the big talk of the town. And you get other delegates from the West Coast and Midwest homophile organizations that are uh, officially part of ECHO. They go there as like kind of observer delegates like SIR and uh, Mattachine Midwest. And because of that, suddenly it's not just this Northeastern Corridor. It was kind of clear at this conference that we're going to have to do some restructuring and reimagining to... There, there are more voices in the conversation now that we need to make room and make space for. So this is where we move into what we're calling phase two, homophile organizing goes national. So Tyler, you were mentioning NACO. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, it became apparent by this point that ECHO was not effectively providing enough national representation because it was very centered in this Boston to DC Northeast corridor. And meanwhile, all the West Coast and Midwestern organizations, they want to be involved in the planning and the organizing and the discussions going on in Echo. And we saw that they sent observers to the 65 Echo Conference, but Echo decided to accommodate 
these organizations by hosting a national planning conference of homophile organizations in February of 1966 in Kansas City. So many acronyms. Yes, NPICO. Yeah, NPICO, and then we have NACO, and we have ECHO, and we have ERCO. It's it's just, they really love, man, homophile organizations. I mean, just gays. Gays love acronyms. Uh, So 14 organizations in total were represented at this conference from coast to coast, and Kansas City sort of represented a central meeting point in the center of the United States. But nonetheless, even with all these considerations going into the planning of the planning conference, there were still a lot of tensions leading up to the conference and a lot of egos and interpersonal and regional rivalries, which are only going to get worse as we go as we go <laughs> on. But Dick Leitch sort of colorfully wrote in a letter about all the sort of interregional and interpersonal drama leading up to the convention. He wrote, I didn't realize how much intergroup politicking there was until we started getting replies about the Kansas City thing. Every letter I receive is full of innuendo, overtones, undercurrents, and implications hiding beneath every word. I fully expected an open and honest meeting, and am coming prepared to fully deflate anyone who pulls any pompous horseshit. Since at least two Easterners are going to try coups at the meeting, I think I'd prefer a West Coast moderator. And you fit the role perfectly. God. <laughs> you, you meaning the person he's writing to? It's listeners. This is a this is an audio medium, so you could not see it, but you should have seen my face as soon as Tyler started doing his Dick Leitch voice because that was amazing. And, and that I'm is try- how he sounds. And I'm trying, like I'm trying while you're reading this quote, not to just like bust out laughing. <laughs> Didn't want to detract. Fantastic. Listen, any listener who goes and seeks out recordings of Dick Leitch. I defy you to tell me that that was <laughs> spot that, that on. Was wrong. Spot on. Uh, there's also this this letter from E. A. Diaguardi, who is the director of the Homosexual Voters Advisory Council, and he's he writes saying all these things about how we we have to be really careful because the FBI and Secret Service might be surveilling us, knowing this this big conference is coming up. So he he writes this letter, gentlemen. We wish to sincerely thank you for the invitation to the forthcoming conference in Kansas City in February, but regret we will not be able to attend. Your first-class sealed envelope was received at our post office box unstuck, and only the clasp was holding the flap shut. It may be that the envelope was not sealed adequately before it was dispatched from your office, and it came open of itself en route. Nevertheless, it would be to your advantage to know that perhaps even the authorities know of your meeting. So jokingly, may I add, beware of, quote, undercover agents. Also, it is my understanding that every postmaster has an FBI or Secret Service rating whereby he is authorized to open first-class mail. As you know, the FBI and Secret Service do not have to observe the usual constitutional requirements in their work or have to have search warrants, etc., or so I have heard. But from a responsible source. Perhaps your own legal counsel could research more information on this for you. Basically saying, thank you, but no thank you, you're probably being infiltrated, which is not an unsound fear to have amidst the Lavender Scare. Right, we do know the FBI was watching. (laughs) Yep. But you know, regardless, despite all these concerns about surveillance and interpersonal rivalry, the convention still went ahead and decided to establish an official national successor organization to ECHO, and it was going to be called the North American Conference of Homophile Organizations, or NACO, as we've mentioned earlier. 
And also, you really miss an opportunity. It's spelled nacho. Pronounce it nacho. I know, Just right? Give see, in I, to nacho. See, I thought for the longest time it was pronounced nacho. I did too, and then you corrected me when we got together with this. <laughs> give in to the nacho. Right? They did miss an opportunity, I think. Yeah. Um, but also at this conference, they do also create an agenda for the months moving forward as they sort of integrate everything into this new national organization they decide to hold a nationally coordinated protest for armed forces day which would be may 21st to protest the u.s military and federal government's discrimination against homosexuals in you know hiring and service policies and you know this is a big deal right Mm -hmm. this is like the first nationally coordinated demonstration coast to coast Mm -hmm. for one event And, you know, specifically, this action was in response to a letter that February, right before the National Planning Conference, and it's from the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense by Colonel M.P. Disco and the Director of Personnel Management, and this is part of the letter. Essentially, the Department of Defense policy requires prompt separation of a homosexual. This is mandatory. The homosexual person is considered unsuitable for military service and is not permitted to serve in the armed forces in any capacity. His presence in a military unit would seriously impair discipline, good order, morale, and the security of the armed forces. So this is sort of what this new national organization and the National Conference of Home File Organizations is responding to, this sort of officially stated policy of the U.S. Department of Defense. Right, yeah. May 21st comes, and, you know, the the coordinated protest is a smashing success, especially the Los Angeles branch of it, which utilized a motorcade, and it got a lot of attention and, you know, has been... <laughs> Uh, pretty dumbly <laughs> since then, called uh, the first gay pride parade. Um, I, I, no, I, no I, editorializing I, here on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just I'm just looking at your notes and the outline is just like L.A. mobilization <laughs> utilized a motorcade, which has parentheses stupidly been called parentheses by idiots. <laughs> the first gay pride parade. I won't name anybody, but um, there's. There's a certain subset of very white and very assimilationist mm. g- gay men in middle age who we very- can give it its we can give it its due and its importance without like subsuming other things. Right. Yeah, so at this conference, there was also the decision made to establish, basically reorganizing and taking NACO as, like, the umbrella and then having sub-regional bodies under that umbrella. So you've got ECHO kind of morphs into Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations. I don't know why they didn't just keep it as echo <laughs> like you guys already have it um <laughs> you know just just be like cool echo's part of NACO now um but yeah it's dominated by Mattachine of Washington and Mattachine of New York which is led by Leitch and then you have the Midwest Conference of Homophile Organizations so Mick Mikko <laughs> that one's Mick- not so Mikko. easy Mikko, Mikko um and that one's dominated by Mattachine Midwest. And you also have then the uh, West Coast kind of delegation, the Western Conference of uh, Homophile Organizations. WICO, or, you know, none of them are... are West, West, Westco. Westco. Yeah. WICO. Um, there you go, WICO. It's like yeah. WICO. Yeah. Um, 
which is uh, kind of dominated by Society for Individual Rights. And, you know, Echo never really kind of went away as the main body. They're essentially the ones that kind of drove the overall agenda for NACO. It's, it's, well, it's, it's now Urko. It's, again, it's, look at me and my fancy mustache. I mean, R. <laughs> We're different now. Um, except, you know, now it's, um, it's Frank Kameny in the trench coat with the <laughs> mustache. Uh, right. But, like, Urko dictated the NACO policy and agenda. Uh, needless to say, the West Coast and Midwest conferences hated that. <laughs> yeah. New York supremacy. Yeah, and it, it was. It was New York, Philadelphia, D.C. supremacy, basically. And that tension will come back later as well. Uh, and Echo, you know, now under this kind of Urko uh, name, formally dissolves, and they go forward being Urko. August 1966... We also, you know, can't have this episode without just briefly mentioning the Compton's Cafeteria riot that happens, which we will do an entire episode on it. But it is a West Coast, San Francisco-based uprising against police brutality that happened. Uh, we don't know the exact date, but it was some night in August 1966. So, like, I included this because I want to discuss a little bit without divulging too much. Yeah, I'm really, like, I actually don't, this is like cryptically put into our outline. So I'm like, ooh, <laughs> how exactly does it like fit in with Janice society and other things? So there are certain things, there are certain factors which I and others have uncovered, which point to the Compton's Cafeteria riot taking place either on August 6th, 1966, mm -hmm. or August 27th. And if it were to be the 27th, that means it would coincide with the first with the NACO conference. NACO conference that was in San that, Francisco. That was in San Francisco, like just down the block. And what we do know about the NACO conference is this first NACO conference, rather, is that Vanguard, which it's a, a like a queer youth organization, in San queer Francisco. youth organization that the month before. Compton's Cafeteria Riot had been leafleting outside Compton's as a result of Compton's anti-trans discrimination policy. They organized leafleting campaigns and pickets outside of Compton's the month prior. And what we do know about the NACO conference is that Vanguard made sort of a big show about wanting more direct action mm -hmm. to take place under the NACO umbrella, and they were sort of rebuffed. And also at this conference, we see the return of Clark Pollock and the Janus Society sort of coming back into the NACO fold and participating. And I have sort of this working theory that possibly Clark Pollock noticed what Vanguard was doing in trying to push the issue on getting NACO to endorse more direct action and maybe sort of put his head together with some of the people in Vanguard and mm. it sort of maybe possibly snowballed into what eventually became the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. There's a lot of missing pieces in this right. theory, but if if the riot did indeed take place on August over on August weekend. 27th over that weekend, it would in many ways sort of stand to reason. 
And that's sort of the crux. Oh, that's so fascinating. Isn't it? Yeah. Well, and I think I saw you uh, had kind of a, li- a little back and forth with Susan Stryker about it because she is, you know, the person who actually found all of the materials on the Compton's Cafeteria riot in the archives of the GLBT Historical Society. And that's kind of how it came to light that that happened. And this, you know, shortly before Stonewall major event happened. So I'm curious to see kind of where this goes. Yeah, it's it's something that we're definitely going to still be pursuing and investigating and seeing if these dots can be connected. Nice. Yeah, you also get uh, official NACO or organizations like the Madison Society of New York organizing their like own actions for the first time. Probably the biggest, like most notable one is from April 1966, the Julius Sip-In, led by Dick Leish and Craig Rodwell, where uh, at the Julius Tavern in New York, much like kind of what happened with the Dewey's sit-in, is they organized a bunch of queer people to basically come together in this bar that was refusing to serve them and sit there and drink. It's it's kind of funny because Julius's was like the third place they tried because the yeah. other the other two places they announced, oh, we are homosexuals and we and we'd like to be served. It's like, oh, you you guys, you're okay. Like, right? They they wanted to make a. St- <laughs> They wanted to make a statement. They're like, okay, let's find somebody who's going to be homophobic so we can do this. Well, because they wanted to have a test case to challenge the New York State Liquor Authority's policy that bars couldn't serve to homosexuals. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, kind of last bit of this section is you get the first official NACO conference from August 25th to 30th in San Francisco, held like directly after the National Daughters of Belitis conference. And there was, uh, it's just, and there was a, there was a SIR conference too. Too, right like it was just this kind of back to back to back yeah, of these just, these queer organizations coming together <laughs> just all month basically yeah okay so sort of jumping ahead to 1967 cbs had been producing this documentary on the homosexual community for a while now and finally on march 7th 1967 it airs as this program called the homosexuals and It's largely viewed now and even back then as a very damaging piece of anti-gay propaganda, but the Madison Society in particular, it was pretty happy, honestly, with the exposure it was getting. The most notable development of the year 1967 was the establishment of the Student Homophile League. So this was a project started in late 1966 by uh, Columbia University student Robert Martin, who's more commonly known as Stephen Donaldson. But uh, with the assistance of Dick Leitch of Madison Society of New York, he founds the Student Homophile League at Columbia University. And Leitch sort of made sure that SHL was fast-tracked through the NACO credentials process, and SHL did wind up being represented at the conference that August, which was like a very fast process of gaining the credentials. SHL notable in the fact that it's the first campus LGBTQ organization in U.S. history. SHL pretty quickly decides it's going to try to branch out and sort of become like a homophile version of SNCC. It's this conduit for the student movement, which is taking off around this point, right? With Vietnam and everything else. Yeah. And this is really, this is really where we start to get this more radical kind of undercurrent really coming in with youth led movements, which uh, would kind of come to bite the quote unquote old guard of the homophile movement in the butt in following years. Uh, 1968. 
Back to Barbara Giddings. Barbara and her followers split from the Philadelphia chapter of Daughters of Belitis to form a separate organization, the Homophile Action League. Great name. Just gotta Fantastic. say, just gotta pause on that. Fantastic name. There should be a successor organization today called that. Yes. It's, it's uh, so cool. And it's, and it's meant, you know, as kind of a more radical alternative, but, you know, not necessarily as radical as these, like, youth-led organizations coming up. We're starting to see, like, these more radical NACO members starting to, like, exploit the, like, credential system. They're creating these, like, shell, orga- shell organizations to make sure that they have enough voting power. Like, you get uh, Homosexual Youth Movement, or the acronym HIM, H-Y-M-N, formed as kind of like a, like a breakaway of Mattachine of New York, which is basically just Craig Rodwell and his boyfriend. And they, like, it, it combined with all these new kind of student homophile league chapters popping up, and it starts to create a lot of tension with the NACO leadership. You know, it's like, oh, <laughs> all these radicals are coming in and vastly changing the narrative. Oh, no, what do we do? <laughs> so, you know, it's it's... things are really starting to come to a head. It's, you know, not necessarily just, like, slight interpersonal disagreements and preference and drama. It's, like, the the fundamental way we are approaching these questions is changing. Right. We have the 1968 conference, which this year was in Chicago. And according to write-ups in The Advocate, there was a lot of tension along the East and West in regards to, like, representation and making sure that everybody had, (laughs) like, an actual valid and equal voice. This is also where we get... The official adoption of the slogan, Gay is Good, coined by Frank Kameny, as we've mentioned before, modeled after Black is Beautiful. And this is where we have earlier in the movement, we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, that there were attempts at creating like a homosexual bill of rights. And this is where it actually gets like officially adopted and fleshed out. And so the homosexual bill of rights that is adopted at this 1968 conference reads, one. Private consensual sex between persons over the age of consent shall not be an offense. 2. Solicitation for any sexual acts shall not be an offense except upon the filing of a complaint by the aggrieved party, not a police officer or agent. 3. A person's sexual orientation or practice shall not be a factor in granting or renewing of federal security clearances or visas or in the granting of citizenship. 4. Service in and discharge from the armed forces and eligibility for veterans' benefits shall be without reference to homosexuality. And then five, a person's sexual orientation or practice shall not affect his eligibility for employment with federal, state, or local governments or private employers. So basically just saying we're creating this document to completely throw everything that's going on in the lavender scare in the bin and saying we reject this. Exactly. And that brings us to... Our phase three. You might have noticed, we've come up against 1968. What happens the next year, 1969? Stonewall. And that kind of changes the game for how people are viewing what they need to do going forward. And unfortunately, the kind of larger homophile, urco, NACO leaders fail to essentially capture this, like, lightning in a bottle so dick leitch i'm not gonna i'm not gonna ascribe any sort of motivations to dick leitch but i don't think it's unreasonable to think that dick leitch didn't view this as sort of his big opportunity to supplant 
Frank Hameny as mm. the top dog within the broader homophile movement. So basically what happened is that right after Stonewall, we're talking like maybe two or three days after the Management Society of New York decides it's going to try and capitalize on what happened at Stonewall by forming what was called the Mattachine Action Committee, mm. which is made up of sort of like local youth activists that many of whom had participated at Stonewall. So what happened is that the Mattachine Action Committee, or MAC, organized a couple of community meetings to discuss the events at Stonewall. So July 9th, about 100 people attend a meeting in Midtown Manhattan, and there's all this bottled up energy, right? Like, And Leitch sort of decides he's going to delegate uh, the responsibility of planning a march to a group of them and have them meet in the back. And within minutes, they start calling themselves the Gay Liberation Front, like almost jokingly, kind of. Uh, you know, Martha Shelley, she's very, she's very excited when someone mentions it. She's like, fuck yeah, we're the Gay Liberation Front. And she slams her hand on the table and like, <laughs> like slices her hand open oh, Jesus. on a loose bottle cap that's on the table. And it's like, Christ. she's like gushing blood. So <laughs> that's sort of what goes on in the first meeting. Next meeting, July 16th, about 200 people are there and a lot of tension because it's very hot and Dick Leitch is very late. And what happens is there's a walkout and a lot of people who participate in the walkout wind up being the main base of organizations like the Gay Liberation Front and later the Gay Activist Alliance, which is a split off of the Gay Liberation Front. And so with the Gay Liberation Front, many chapters quickly began sprouting up in other cities, and it very quickly becomes apparent that it's going to be extremely, extremely difficult for leaders of the homophile movement to contain this energy. And this is the critical moment in mm -hmm. the homophile movement's fate following Mattachine Society of New York and Dick Leitch's failure to capture this energy right after Stonewall. And and really kind of holding on to, but this is what we've been doing and this is what works. And and that really kind of comes out in the annual reminder picket that happens that year. That week. Yes, that week. Literally later that week, like Craig Rodwell organizes busloads of queer youth to, you know, come in and participate in this picket. And many of them are just saying, fuck you to, you know, the dress code and doing things like public displays of affection. And Frank Kameny is pissed off. Oh, yeah. He's like, no, we don't do that here. He right. tries to break up like a lesbian couple holding hands. You know, it's we're, st we're still holding on to this. Like, we need to hold on to respectability. Meanwhile, Stonewall has just happened and everybody's like, fuck everything. And so, like, Kameny creates this, like, really kind of butting heads relationship with Rodwell. They, they really kind of are at, at odds with each other and Kameny is, like, trying to be, like, a roadblock to what Rodwell is trying to shift around at this point. And, like, I've actually found letters in Rodwell's personal papers where Urko is threatening to go after him's NACO credentials and mm. their funding. And wow. it's like an interesting window into how Kameny and his supporters kind of tried to run things with muscle around their sort of special branch of the homophile movement. Yeah. 
Also, later that summer, there's the NACO conference in Kansas City, where even more tension <laughs> is boiling to the surface. Um, the radicals basically attempt to stage a coup, again, led by Stephen Donaldson of SHL. And this is where we're beginning to see the homophile movement structures really sort of undeniably being affected in an irreparable way by what's happening on the ground in New York and elsewhere. And the energy is clearly building. Like the coup d'etat by the radicals, it, it doesn't work, but it, it gathers enough momentum to the point where the other leaders of NACO are really, really nervous. And mm. so Donaldson sort of writes in The Advocate that there's this new radical caucus that's forming, is how he mm. is how he describes it. And like, bear in mind, this is a couple months after Stonewall. Like right. the other even more radical organizations haven't even attempted to join NACO yet and go through the credentials process. And like this is something that's coming down the barrel and the leaders of NACO who are paying attention know this is coming. And they're not liking what they're what they're seeing. <laughs> so right. but the main event for nineteen sixty nine is not the NACO conference, but it's the ERCO conference that happens later that November. And this is like the critical moment where it becomes just beyond apparent that the homophile movement is in its death it is, throes. It is death throes, yeah. And it's about to be replaced by something much bigger and something much more radical than they were used to seeing. So I could spend an hour talking about this conference alone. <laughs> Um, but we're gonna, we're gonna go through like the crib notes of it basically. So, night before the conference, Craig Rodwell, he has a meeting with Ellen Broidy and Linda Rhodes of the Student Homophile League of New York University at his apartment and he pitches them this idea. He wants to replace the annual reminder march in Philadelphia with a march in New York City to commemorate the anniversary of Stonewall. And he needed Broidy and Rhodes to present it to the ERCO conference because he was worried that Kameny, who is still holding out this incredibly petty vendetta against him for what happened at the 1969 annual reminder, which is now four months, we're four months removed from it right. uh, at this point. But he was worried that Kameny was going to throw his weight around and defeat the motion if he, Rodwell, were the one to present it. Right. Basically being more, more concerned with going against whatever Craig Rodwell wants to do rather than thinking about what's going what's the best thing for the movement exactly he, so he needed Broidy to be the one to be the vehicle for this proposal and so Broidy agrees she and Rhodes present it at the conference the next day and it passes you know overwhelmingly almost unanimously only the Madison Society of New York is abstaining in this because you know they're still trying to hold on to hope that they're going to be the new standard bearers of the New York-based activist scene, and they don't want Rodwell sort of encroaching on that. So, spoiler, this <laughs> march that Rodwell has in mind becomes what we now know as New York Pride. Right. And, you know, shortly after the ERCO conference, Rodwell leads the Christopher Street Liberation Day Umbrella Committee with Ellen Broidy to help organize this march. They hold meetings in his apartment and bookshop beginning that November and December. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no involvement from the Mattachine Society of New York whatsoever. And and that's just kind of, that's kind of it. It's the why we, you know, why aren't they involved? And there's there's too many other kind of petty things going on. Yeah. And, and that June, June 28th, 1970, the event goes off without a hitch and 4,000 queer people march down 6th Avenue to Central Park and have the most incredible day any of them had ever had. And there's like no official homophile, you know, endorsement endorsement or representation there. Yeah. It basically proved to the movement that like effective organizing and political action didn't require what the homophile guard like Mattachine, like Daughters of Belitis, were pushing forward as the only way to do this. The only way we're going to make progress is if we abide by respectability politics. This showed... You may think that, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true, and we're at this turning point. And if this was the public face of that, the functional face of that would be what happened at the final NACO conference in San Francisco that August, and it was held again at the Sur Center, and this is when, you know, the radical orgs, you know, make their big move, and... By this point, they've all gone through this cumbersome credentials process to gain voting rights on the floor. And I want to read this passage from, I believe it's the October 1970 edition of The Advocate magazine by Rob Cole. He writes, An invasion by gay lib demonstrators near the end of the conference brought a threat to call the police. The demonstrators withdrew at that point, but wound up in virtual control of the convention anyway. The convention voted to end NACO's elaborate credentials and voting requirements and substitute a one-man, one-vote open meeting arrangement. It also swept away all of the conference's standing committees, structure, and bylaws. In their place went a few simple arrangements centering around a 12-man committee whose main function is to plan next year's meeting in New York. The convention also approved a resolution that NACO, quote, organize, plan, and coordinate a national gay strike day, unquote. But since the changes already approved had left NACO no means to implement it, This was tacitly left up to the resolution's sponsor, militant leader Leo Lawrence. Only the changes in NACO's structure and credentials voting requirements were made in full convention with a majority of the accredited delegates assembled. All but one of the other resolutions, that having to do with women's liberation and oppressed peoples, were adopted at what amounted to a rump session after (laughs) the gay lib invasion. So basically, gay liberation groups storm in, dismantle, Every right. no more structure. of these, no more of this meetings, no more of this, you know, structured whatever. Only certain people can talk at certain times. No more rules like we're the yeah. outcasts of society, and we're not gonna fucking play by your rules. And like within minutes, like I guess that was it. No more Nico. Yeah. So that brings us to our epilogue of the homophile movement. Coming off of this 1970 NACO conference, NACO like announced dates and locations for its next few conferences uh, for 71 and 72, but they just they never actually materialized. There wasn't enough there there wasn't enough momentum. All of their structures had essentially just been thrown in the garbage, <laughs> um, and they formally disbanded a few months later. In the summer of 1971, NACO treasurer Foster Gunnison Jr. announces the cancellation of the conference in New York and says he considers NACO defunct. 
You also get the disbanding of the National Daughters of Belitis in 1970. There were still kind of individual groups hanging on in different places. Many of the Mattachine chapters kind of held on until the mid or late 1970s, but that kind of strong, singular, national hold was really gone. You know, by 1972, we have hundreds of queer liberation organizations popping up all around the country. I think by 1970, it was like 143 groups, um, including like 60 or so pre-Stonewall homophile groups. But you get this influx of like hundreds of very niche groups in very specific places popping up. And many of them are dominated by this radical counterculture and youth who are, you know, also starting to tune really into what's going on nationally with, you know, and internationally with the United States involvement in the Vietnam War and all of these things kind of coalescing into a larger radical liberation mindset. Despite NACO disbanding, Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings don't go away. I mean, they kind of shift their focus a little bit. They, they still are really, really influential in, in years to come in pressuring the American Psychiatric Association to officially remove homosexuality from the DSM. This happens in December 1973, and it's it's a really nice kind of bookend. It's a nice full circle, continuing that early work we talked about in that first episode done by Mattachine and Evelyn Hooker, and really kind of bringing it to the conclusion. Yeah. And it's a whole campaign that happens, and they make it happen in 1973. Uh, yeah, and they sort of came to it in a roundabout and unexpected way, but the end goal was achieved. Yeah. So- I wanted to kind of give us uh, just a few moments to, like we did last time, kind of talk about our final thoughts and takeaways. You know, what are our, what are our lessons we've learned from this episode? What's our kind of, you know, main thoughts? I had this quote in our outline the last time and forgot to include it, but there's a really fantastic quote by historian Neil Miller from his book Out in the Past that I think really lends a lot of credence to how much pre-Stonewall organizing was integral to what would come after. And you, you wouldn't have everything that happened with gay liberation without these building blocks. He writes, The pre-Stonewall movement made important gains that opened the doors to what came afterward. It strengthened the legal status of gay bars in many states, pressured city officials in New York to end entrapment of gay men, brought about an end to bar harassment in San Francisco, and prompted the first sympathetic media coverage of the gay community. Above all, these organizations enabled many gays and lesbians to survive in the midst of a period in which the most powerful forces of society appeared arrayed against them. I guess the main point I want people to take away from this, and I don't have any sort of specific quotation I want to cite, but what we've discussed here, I want it to get people to sort of think about the notion that Stonewall, the Stonewall Rebellion, is more of a... It's a piece to the puzzle. It's a piece to the puzzle, exactly. It's, it's, it is not the birth of the right. gay and queer movement as it has been portrayed. Or even the birth of gay liberation, because you Correct. have SHL and even elements of actions happening before then. I've termed it to be this. It was in many ways a pretext for the left 
radical wing of the movement to assert itself. It was a conduit. It was a conduit, correct. Yeah. If it were not Stonewall, it would have been another raid or rebellion or riot at right. some point. And as we and as we've seen, it also wasn't the first in that last five years. You have Compton's, you have Black Cat, you have Cooper's Donuts. There's to some extent you can talk about Dewey's sit in and the sippin. You know, Stonewall has its importance, but I mean I think I think we as like queer historians too are kind of all um coming off of very, very recent like 50th anniversary of Stonewall media blitz. Um mm-hmm. so it's it deserves our attention, but it does not deserve the sole attention in the narrative. Yeah, I think we're in the I think as a result of that blitz, we're sort of like in a mode of evaluating the true extent of its importance. Yeah. And this is part of that. Absolutely. Uh well, before we dive into our how gay were they ratings, we had a couple more pop culture tie-ins that kind of fit a little bit more in this episode than last one. Yeah, so it, the 1995 film Stonewall, which it's been a while since I've seen this, but it depicts members of the Machine Society of New York as characters, and it also shows a depiction of the annual reminder picket in Philadelphia. Out of order, I want to say, um, because <laughs> it depicts it as taking place before Stonewall. When, oh, interesting. Like, in reality, it took place a week after Stonewall. Uh, there's also... Uh, it just came out in 2020. It was a documentary called Cured, which specifically focuses on the history and the campaign leading to homosexuality being removed from the DSM. It uses archival footage, and it has a bunch of really wonderful and really in-depth interviews with folks who were directly involved, including Frank Kameny, uh, Kayla Husen, who was uh, Barbara Giddings' partner, and more people. It's really comprehensive, and it kind of takes this journey of how we got to this point. And again, Making Gay History, we can't recommend enough for wonderful interviews directly with the folks that we've been talking about. Season 1, Episode 5 is all about Frank Kameny. Season 2, Episode 8 is an interview with Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen. And Season 4, Episode 10 is all about Dick Leitch and the sippin' at Julius. So here we are at the end of two episodes. (laughs) We've returned to our question of how gay were they? So, Tyler, how gay were Echo and Nako in comparison uh, to the, the beginnings of, of where, we, where we've been in, in episode one, or part one, rather? Oh, in comparison to where we were in part one? It's giving uh, 10 out of 10 three-piece suits, I have to say. Given where the movement was in 1962 and where it was in 1970, you could not have had that much advancement without sort of the vision and fortitude of the early echo organizers that decided to take the plunge and set up a national organizing structure for all of the homophile organizations in the Northeast and eventually the entire country. And Stonewall would also have not had the effect that it had if that organizing structure were not in place. And I think it's imperative that we recognize this as historians, as appreciators of this history, and acknowledge what these groups, for all of their flaws, were able to accomplish. Yes. Good. Cool. Uh, let's see. I'm going to give Echo and Nako um, 9 out of 10 plates of nachos. <laughs> For what they should have been called. What they should have been called. (laughs) Give in to the nacho. I don't know why I'm like choosing to die on this hill. Um, What's the cheese then? 
uh, we'll say the the cheese is the oppressive oppressive force of respectability politics mm. smothering them. So what's so what so what's the loaded nacho then? Like, what do you load it with? Uh, you load so what goes on top of the right. oppressive uh, blanket of cheese is right. the jalapenos of uh, <laughs> radical youth organizing. Love it, love it. Yeah, there we love go. It. That's what we'll do. That's there what we'll we do. We'll do nine out of ten nachos. Right. Um, well. Thank you so much, Tyler, for rounding out this story with me going through literally like 20, 30 years of <sighs> gay organizing. Uh, until we see you again, could you let our listeners know just a little bit about you and where they can find you online? Yes, you can find me at Tyler Albertario on Twitter at T-Y-L-E-R-A-L-B-E-R-T-A-R-I-O at T-Albertario on Medium and on Patreon at Tyler underscore Albertario. Awesome. And I'm Lee Pfeffer. When I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks and deciding to pick a fight with very long dead people about their choice of semantics, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and crying about Xena episodes on my couch or sometimes in other places. History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at History is Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at historyisgaypodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon. As a patron, you can get access to our secret Discord server, Sappho Salon mini-episodes, where we'll treat you to love letters and poems from queer historical faves. We're also doing pop culture tie-in live watches and future queer history trivia nights, exclusive merch, lots of other wonderful things happening in that space. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website or patreon.com slash history is gay and join the ranks of our patron community along with the amazing Jesse Usko and Marley. Thank you all for your support. Couldn't do this without you. Every day, I'm grateful that you allow me to have some of the resources I use in putting on this show. You can also get merch at our History is Gay store. You can click on shop at our website. We've got t-shirts and hoodies and laptop cases and a whole bunch of fun stuff you can check out on RT Public. And lastly, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and we can expand our awesome community. That's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Thank you.